Welcome to the Feeling the Power podcast. My name is Greg Ashman, and in this episode, for the first time, we have a returning guest, Daisy Christodoulou. Daisy, uh, for those who did not listen to the last podcast and who may be unfamiliar with you, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me on the podcast again. So um, I'm the Director of Education at No More Marking. So we're a UK organisation and we work with schools to provide online comparative judgment assessments. So that's my day job. Yeah. I am also, I suppose before that, I worked for, um, I, worked for I used to be a teacher, secondary school English teacher, worked for a group of schools in London. Um, and I've written a couple of books as well. Yes. And you've written Seven Myths, which is probably a seminal work. One of the things about that book, I, when I first came to us, I think we mentioned this last time, so I'm probably repeating this because it's it's the thing I tell everyone. Um, uh, I was hesitant to recommend it to people because I thought it was so much the UK context and they wouldn't understand about Ofsted because you use so much research from Ofsted reports and stuff like that. But people here, they understand it perfectly. They, they know exactly what you mean. So it's a, it, I'm, I have no hesitation recommending it now. You've got the one on assessment, um, making... Good progress. Good progress. Yeah. And the tech book. What's yep. the name of the tech book? Teachers versus tech. Teachers versus tech. Teachers versus tech. So they're all worth reading. They're all a part of my library. And um, yeah, you're uh, a an intellect in the education sphere um, who is always worth talking to. So I'm really pleased to have you on. Now, we're going to focus a little bit um, because you've been on before. We're going to focus a little bit on an issue um, in this. Uh, episode and that is the issue of writing and teaching writing and obviously that links to the work you do with comparative judgment and no more marking so that will come in um so what have you can you just tell us a little bit how that's evolved so i it, it, for those who aren't familiar i'll give a really really rough uh, description of it and then you can fill in all the details and maybe how the whole thing has evolved over the last 12 months. So comparative judgments, basically, as I understand it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, you put two um, pieces of writing up on the screen next to each other. You say, you sort of use your, your sort of, it feels intuitive, but there's basically loads of factors that go into a piece of writing. I think Royce Sadler up in Queensland, he reckons there's over 100. So he couldn't possibly enumerate them all in a marking uh, key or what do we call them? Rubric. Rubric. So, but yeah. so, but an expert teacher can essentially evaluate all of those while reading two pieces. So, all they basically do is say, "Oh, this one's better than this one." Click, and then over, over when you've done that with lots of people have done that with lots of pieces of writing. There's an algorithm that someone very smart came up with that then sort of ranks them, and you get a distribution of the pieces of writing. Am I in the right ballpark? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So um, I'll add in a couple of things. So I yeah. think the two, I mean, the big thing people have is, well, why bother with this approach? Like, what is the point? <laughs> and I'd say the two, the two kind of important things about comparative judgment relative to traditional marking, um, that it's comparative, not absolute, and the way that it aggregates lots of judgments. Um, so um, what's really interesting, which is something that's interesting, goes beyond education, beyond assessment, is that human beings are not very good at making absolute judgments, which is interesting when you consider how much of our life probably we go around making absolute judgments yeah um and so that's not just true if you're making judgments of essays if you're making judgments of height color pitch temperature it's actually quite hard to make an absolute judgment so just to give you an example of that someone walks into the room you're in at the moment and i say how tall is that person that's an absolute judgment if two people walk into the room you're in and i say to you who's taller the person on the left the person on the right that's a comparative judgment 
And I think it's really easy to see from that the comparative judgment is much easier. Yeah. I think you'll always get that right. You'll always be in agreement with everyone. Whereas the absolute judgment, you might get in the ballpark, but I don't think you're going to always get it right. So the same is true of, of as I say, a lot of different phenomena, including uh, marking uh, essays. Um, the comparative judgment is easier. So that's one reason, that one advantage that comparative judgment has. The next advantage it has, uh, the way we run it, is that because you can make these judgments quite quickly and they're easier, you can make lots of them. So you aggregate all of these judgments um, and then, yes, of course, there still will be the odd rogue judgment as with anything with, with humans, but they will wash out, they'll cancel out because you're aggregating up so many, so many different opinions. Um, and then you're right. Yeah, we have an algorithm. We didn't develop the algorithm. It was developed back in the 1920s by a psychometrician called Louis Thurstone. So this idea has actually been around for a while. It's just that I think really before the advent of, of kind of cloud computing, it was quite hard to make it practical. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. what we can do now is you can press refresh and your results will be there in a few seconds. Yeah. And um, so yeah. it will crunch all of those decisions, pull them all together. And it does give you, so you use the phrase rank order. And I think that's a really nice way for understanding it in a basic sense. But in a sense, it gets a little bit more sophisticated than that in quite an interesting way is that obviously you will get a rank order, but you'll also get a scaled score. And if all you got was a rank order, Say you were assessing 30 kids and it came back and you had a rank order one to 30. Okay, you know, that's kind of useful, but to some extent you could say, well, you could have put them on a table and put them in order. What you actually get from comparative judgment is you also get a scaled score. And the scaled score gives you an idea of the gaps in between the pieces. So for example, you know, maybe you set your 30 scripts to run from one to 40 as a scaled score. Yeah. The top script might get 40. The second script might get 39. The second script might get 30. Yeah you know, depending on how the judgments have fallen out. So that's in already kind of more interesting, more sophisticated than a rank order. Yeah. And then when you run really big projects and you run really big projects over time, it gets even more interesting. So, you know, just give you a, a kind of simplified example of a project we've, we've run in England. Um, we assessed 27,000 year seven, so 11 year olds in September, followed up assessing again in June. And then effectively what we do at the end of the year, so obviously, you know, UK school year running from September to June, what you're doing at the end of the year is effectively we will assess all 54,000 pieces together. And then you've got all 54,000 pieces on this scale and it's the same scale. The September and the June pieces, therefore, are kind of on the same scale. And so then for every individual pupil, they've got two pieces of writing on that scale. So you can then go in and go, right, was your start of year piece? Uh, what score did that get? And what did your end of year piece get? And hopefully your end of year piece did better than your start of year. So they're all on the same scale. And what's also interesting about that is you'll see that it is theoretically possible for every student to do better at the end of the year than at the start of the year. So even a pupil who's really struggling and who perhaps is always coming in the bottom, you know, bottom sort of quintile or whatever, they can still, you can still show the progress they've made. Similarly, you could see a pupil at the top who's still doing very well. You might be able to see, well, they, they haven't made much progress. So it's a very sophisticated way of, of getting, uh, you know, a kind of measure of student attainment and also progress. And that's what we've been trying to do over the past couple of years is almost kind of build this universal writing scale that runs across several years and allows you to track progress over time in that fashion. Is there another advantage? Like the, the traditional sort of approach would be, for instance, you and me, but both English teachers, We've given uh, some essays for kids to, to write and we've got a rubric and the rubric says something like, I know, supports 
point with relevant evidence and i and we and i've given it for my kid because i want them i want them to do well and i'm looking at it that i want them to get like eight out of ten or 23 out of 30 or whatever scale we're doing it on then we come and have a moderation meeting and you say i don't think that's relevant evidence and i say well i think it is relevant evidence and we have a bit of an argument about that and we come to some sort of judgment but everything is always sort of being revised up like we're always reinterpreting the rubric there's an incentive for us whatever this rubric is and it can't capture everything anyway and the statements are always necessarily a bit vague but we're always trying to kind of there's a little bit of an arms race where i'm i'm trying to interpret the rubric in as um as generous a fashion as I can get away with. And then we all end up with everyone getting nine out of 10 or 23 out of 30 or whatever. And, but this system comparative kind of forces a difference. So even if according to our system with the, with the rubrics, two kids would both have got nine out of 10 in your system, it forces you to decide which of the two is better. Always. You're always forced to do that. Yes. So, so that, some really great points there. So um, the, the, the point about how moderation meeting works is very true. And so obviously I was an English teacher. I took part in lots and lots and lots of moderation meetings, large chunks of my life. And I, and I ran quite a few as well. And look, the good thing about a traditional moderation meeting, the thing that I did always like about it, and I think people did always like them, is you get to see different writing. And I remember when I started teaching, someone saying to me, you know, it would be really good for you to go to this moderation meeting because you'll see writing from outside your class you'll see that you know I was teaching a sort of um we had set classes at GCSE and I was teaching one set and you know I go into the moderation and you're able to see beyond that and look all that writing and have a discussion about it so I think the really valuable thing you get from moderation are those professional discussions uh, and the chance to see lots of writing as a mechanism for establishing reliable grades (laughs) you know it's, it's less effective and, and not only that, um, I think you're absolutely right to point up the kind of almost the sort of small p politics that creeps in. And it's very easy. And I've been in the position on kind of both sides of the fence. You go to them being quite defensive and, you you know, often you're told to bring along like a bring along a top, middle and a bottom from your class. And you kind of go along thinking I'm going into the ring fighting for my top kid. Yeah. You know, if I come out and this top kid has not got, you know, the grade I gave them, I've let them down. Yeah. Um, and everyone else is coming in that way. And then there's a moderator who's probably coming and trying to damp that down a bit. <laughs> and then, some, you know, and then, as you say, it becomes like less about almost the kids work and more about who can mount a kind of really creative defense uh, of the rubric and interpretation yeah. of the rubric. Now, I'm slightly exaggerating here, but, I, you know, when I say this to most teachers, I think they, they sympathize with that, that point. And so I think what you're trying to do is you do want that ability to read lots of writing, see lots of writing, have professional discussions with teachers what you want to try and do is almost take the heat of the, the grading and the defensiveness. And this is my kid and they're brilliant. <laughs> you want to try and take that out of it. And I think that is what comparative judgment does. And we have a lot of people who say that they say the really nice thing about it is it kind of takes the politics out of the moderation. And the way we think about it is every time you're making a decision, you are silently and anonymously <laughs> moderating the right, uh, the judgments of every other teacher. And they are silently and anonymously moderating your judgments. (laughs) The other thing about it is it's quite democratic. So a moderator or a head teacher does not actually have any more weight than, um, you know, a classroom teacher. So it is very democratic. There's there's lots and lots of data. So if you're worried, if you think, well, that's, you know, you're saying that, but are you telling me that a trainee teacher gets the same weight as a moderator? You You can go into the system afterwards and every individual judge has a consistency metric. And so if there is a judge who is really way out of line on that, it's possible to exclude their judgments and recalculate without them. And that's something we do. 
in our big projects. We never have to exclude that many, but it's good that you have that mechanism there. Um, and the other thing is you can actually see every judgment made by a judge. So if you're looking at a judge and you're thinking, well, this is a really experienced teacher and they're a really reliable marker and I don't understand why they're getting this consistency metric, you can go in and look at all the judgments they've made and we give you a percentage probability that every decision they've made is correct. So for example, it might be that a judge is getting a kind of a, an inconsistent infit score because they are just really making lots of bad judgments. It might be that they've made one judgment that's really odd and you can then, and that'll get like a 1% chance of being right. And mm. then you can pull that judgment up and you can actually look at it and have that discussion. Now, I would only sort of recommend this, you know, the culture in your school has got to be right and supportive for that kind of discussion, but it can be absolutely fascinating to pull up that decision and say, okay, well, this is a decision that the system said is not, uh, you know, it's not in agreement with everyone else. Like, let's have a look at it. Let's investigate that. So there's a lot there. It's, and it's all based on judgments. It's not some kind of, it, it, when we talk about an algorithm, I think sometimes people think, oh, it's an evil algorithm making all the decisions. The algorithm is combining together the decisions, but the decisions are being made by humans. And it's very easy to trace those decisions back to the humans. So it's, it's not a form of AI like you had in these early essay marking systems that essentially was you know, adding up the number of sentences in an essay and yeah. saying, well, it's yeah. got over 50 sentences, therefore we're going to give it a top grade. It's nothing like that at all. There's human judgment absolutely sort of, you know, baked into it. Um, so I think your point about moderation is, is absolutely right, that traditional moderation leaves a lot to be desired and can be quite frustrating. And I think, you know, most of the people we would have using comparative judgment, they'll say, oh, this, you know, this moderation system is, 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 is so much nicer. I'll say one more thing. We also, we set up the moderation pots in our big projects in a specific way, again, to help with this issue of bias and prejudice and defensiveness. <laughs> so in our big projects, so you, just to make clear, you can use comparative judgment in your school. You can go onto our uh, website, set up an account and judge yourself. But we run the, also run these big national projects. And when you take part in a big national project, you're not just judging your own students' writing. So then people say, to us, well, isn't that a bit unfair if I'm judging my students and other students? But here's how we set it up. We set it up so that when you judge in a national project, you will either make a comparison that is your student versus your student. Or every fifth judgment, we program it so that every fifth judgment, you will get a comparison between two students from another school. Yeah. You never are asked to compare your student with a student from another school. We never set up that comparison. And that's so there's no opportunity for you to be biased in favour of your students. And you also haven't got to worry that there will be some student out there um, uh, some teacher out there who is judging down your students because they're being compared to theirs. Yeah. So that never happens. Um, but that system still allows us to put all of the students onto this consistent national scale. So that's kind of how the moderation works. And one more thing I'll say in response to what you said is you said at the end, you said, you know, uh, it isn't possible for two students to, to get nine out of 10. So I'll just sort of make that clear. When you're judging, you have to pick. So when you're judging your two, there can't be a tie. You're yeah. forced to pick. And a lot of people say to us, but sometimes I want a tie. I just want to say they're a score draw. You can't yeah. do that. Yeah. We force you to pick. But it is possible, once all the judgments have happened, that two scripts will come out with the same scaled score. So we, um, I always reassure people with that. As I say, if you see two pieces that you really think are a score, your tie, you really think they're exactly the same, you still have to pick one. But kind of everyone else will think that too. And it will come out in the wash. And they will probably end up with a very similar, if not the same, scaled score because of course in reality you do get scripts that are at the same yeah. level um so you're forced to pick 
but score scripts can still come out having the same the same score. What about the point that I have heard where so obviously you put these in the system, uh, you take the names off so that if it, if it's the kid it, the teachers knows the kid they they don't they're not biased by that. Um, so the names are off and they're just looking at the two texts. What about the teacher that says yeah but all my class wrote this writing and I don't get to read all their their writing. I'm reading all this writing from all these other classes. I might not even read all the the scripts from my class. How do I know what to go back and say to my class and do do with my class? Because I have I failed in my sort of duty of care to uh, read everything that my my particular kids have produced. Yeah. So what we what we sort of suggest and what we've seen a lot of schools do is to combine comparative judgment with whole class feedback. So what we say to do, if you can, is when you're judging, if you can do your judging at the same time as the other teachers in your school. OK, so if you can like schedule a staff meeting. Even if you can't do all of the quota judging in that time, schedule a staff meeting. So you're all ju you're judging independently at your own computers, but you're doing it at the same time, hopefully in the same room for 20, 30 minutes. Then when you finish judging. The results will be there. The first thing we'd say is you can immediately download the spreadsheet of your results and filter by class. So that will be a first thing to do. Um, and you can filter by class and you'll be able to see the scores and the link that will take you to the writing of, of all of your class. So if you, you know, you've got that there, that you'll be able to quickly refer to those pieces. And then what we would say is have a discussion as a group of teachers about the common strengths and weaknesses that you've seen across the pieces. And so this kind of whole class feedback approach is not something we invented at No More Marking. It's something we saw a lot of teachers um, in, in primary and in secondary uh, using this approach. And we really liked it. And it, 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 it dovetailed really well with comparative judgment. Um, and so the idea behind whole class feedback is you don't put an individual comment at the bottom of each piece of writing. You are going back to the class the next lesson and designing some activities that are going to help move them all on. And so, as I say, the people who came up with this idea, it wasn't people, people weren't coming up with this idea to use it with comparative judgment. They're using it anyway. And the reason why they were using it anyway is a couple of reasons. You know, one, writing comments is really time consuming. Um, and two, uh, writing comments actually, is it even that helpful? No. Is it even that useful? And so the problem you get into with written comments is that they often, that, that it's the same problem you have with rubrics. They're just not specific enough. Um, and that's not that you can make them more specific. It's that there are some things that are really hard to express to doing prose. Yeah. And, and there's, a, you know, the, Dylan William has a really great story about this where he's looking at a student's writer, a student's work. He's a science investigation. And the, the students had the work marked and they've got the comment, you need to be more systematic in planning your scientific investigations. And he says um, to the student, well, what does that mean to you? Like, what are you going to do next differently as a result? And the student says, well, I don't know. You know, if I'd known how to be more systematic, I would have been so the first time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, that's a bit flippant. But I will be honest, when I first read, read that for the first time, I cringed because I thought the number of times, I mean, I, as I, said, I was an English teacher, what were the ones I was guilty of using some of the language on the mark scheme? Sentences like, um, you need to infer more insightfully. Yeah. What is a student going to do with that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the, the problem with this approach, I think Dylan Wim goes on to say, he says, it's it's true but useless yeah it's like telling an unsuccessful comedian you need to tell funnier jokes yeah right so um all my students did need to infer more insightfully though other students did need to plan the, the science more, more systematically that's not enough yeah and what you really need to take you to the next step 
is often not just a sentence. <laughs> you often need some kind of activity, uh, something that you're going to do, something that's going to bridge that gap. So another one I talk about a lot is tense. We see a lot of tense inconsistency. Again, very easy to write at the bottom of a dozen, a couple of dozen books, make your tense more consistent. But actually, avoid, avoid run-on sentences. Avoid run-on sentences. Even, even you know, whatever you do, even when you try and drill down, you think you're making it more specific. Even if you say use more full stops, well, where? You know, like <laughs> after every word, like, what do I do? So, yeah, the tense example, I think what you're better off doing is having five first lines of a story on one side of a board or a piece of paper uh, that are all in the past tense and say, right, can you turn all these into present tense openings of sentences? And um, maybe the first one or two are done for you and you have to do the rest yourself. And then the reverse, um, you know, think something like that, I think, is going to be much better at getting you to make tenses more consistent than saying make a tense more consistent. <laughs> so what we would say is, is I, I would say regardless of comparative judgment, I think this is a better way of doing feedback. Now, the pushback we, you know, people get from that, and again, this is something that's gone on in England, you know, people have been having this discussion, regardless of comparative judgment, is to say, well, and then I'm not giving individual feedback to my students, you know, they're not getting that personalised feedback. Um, and, and, and it's true, they're not getting the, the written comment. And I think that's where kind of communication within a school and, and discussing it within a school do become important. And I did talk to one teacher who was at a kind of a girls' grammar school in, in England, and the girls really like getting those written comments. And when they stopped getting them, they felt like they were being neglected and they weren't. They're not getting their blood price. Right, right. <laughs> and, you know, it is true. It, it, the weird thing about the, the, the written comments, they do take a hell of a lot of time. Yeah. So they're almost like a signalling device, aren't they? Yeah, like, I care you about you. Written comment, it is a signal that a teacher has spent minutes yeah. uh, writing that comment. But it's the classic thing where it's a signalling device that's become detached from the underlying meaning. Yeah. And that it's it's the teacher is often spending a lot of time writing it, but it isn't uh, helping you to improve. And the teacher could be spending their time helping you to improve in a way that's much better, but that wouldn't involve that signal. The, so the, I think there are. Yeah. No, I think you just have to work with the, the students and parents, I think, to understand what you're, you're going to be doing there. Um, yeah. And to, to, to explain like this, you know, I know you're used to these written comments, but um, actually they're not they're not effective in helping you to improve. Yeah, the other analogy, and I don't think I came up with it, but I've definitely used it, is coaching football by uh, just standing, watching people play games of football and then writing them little notes at the end on what they need to do next time. Uh, and that's it's kind of equivalent, isn't it? But, the uh, other one I've heard is a driving lesson. Yeah. So, you know, you're doing your three-point turn, you do your three-point turn, your instructor's there, you know, you do your three-point turn. Two weeks later, yeah. he writes you a note. So what you should have done with that three-point <laughs> turn is you should have done a better three-point turn. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously, yeah, football coaching, driving instructor, you've got that real-time verbal communication going on that's really quite niche and specific to you and is tied into exactly what you're doing at that moment uh you know you need to you know if you're coaching football you need to you know move your body so it's you know when you're passing the ball you, you know you're facing the right way you know all those kind of small micro micro things um that would be just real time and i think obviously one of the reasons why um that's harder for teachers is i think we've, you know there is a culture of kind of real accountability where people want to see everything kind of docketed and filed and on a piece of paper and i think mm. you do have a little bit of a culture where if it's happened, if, if something's on paper, it's definitely happened. And if something isn't on paper, then it definitely hasn't happened. Yeah. And neither of those assumptions are true. 
And I think the problem we have with formative assessment, essentially what we're talking about here is formative assessment. The problem with formative assessment is I think that it is by nature, there's something about it that's quite ephemeral. Yeah. And, it's, and it is, we all know, the whole point about formative assessment is real time, <laughs> in the moment. And the problem with that kind of real time in the moment stuff is it's hard to record and it's hard to capture. And so it's hard to build an accountability system about it. Now, I'm not anti-accountability. I think there's you know, obviously a place for that. But I do think that the focus on, you know, capturing and recording and having everything on paper has not helped when it's been married to formative assessment. Yeah. Um, so I do think this approach of whole class feedback, which I see lots of schools doing, regardless of comparative judgment, is very, very powerful. I think it marries very nicely with comparative judgment, too. Uh, I do think it is it does require a bit of a culture shift. But I think it's something I've seen so many schools, as I say, both those we work with and those we don't, who have moved over to it. And it's been a real, a real, you know, a real game changer. There. And writing is a complex product. So it's the combination of things. So trying to divine too much from that that piece of writing i mean if you notice there's an issue with run on sentences you might want to do some work on that specific thing for a while and maybe do mini assessments around that um multiple choice or or something uh, rather than just throwing them into more um complex writing what well, one thing i wanted to ask about so this this is the thing that that bothers me a bit um, and, and worries me um about writing um a lot of schools, my school's the same, a lot of schools have been convinced of the value um, of a knowledge-rich curriculum. So rather than uh, just doing sort of writing based on, like, we'll do a term of narrative writing, we'll do a term of informational writing, we'll do a term of uh, argumentative writing or whatever, uh, we wanted to do something of value. So like our year, year nine students will read um Ben Goldacre's Bad Science, and they'll write about that, for instance, or, or they'll write about um, more traditional things like novels and stuff like that, um, and with quite complex ideas. But obviously, you can, uh, you can write, it's harder to write about complex ideas than it is to write about simpler ideas. So this notion, two, two things, I'll, I'll elucidate them both again. So this notion if, of map, mapping progression, when you're going from writing about your pets or school uniform to writing about Macbeth and you, you say well actually your writing has declined but has the writing declined or is it just that we're writing in a much more complex context now and the second thing is how do you like leverage what you've learned from your knowledge rich curriculum when our big assessment systems like NAPLAN in Australia insist on giving you banal prompts like the door and there's a picture of a door and the kids have got to do a narrative response and they've been learning about refugees or they've been learning something really rich and then they've got to sit down and write about this door. Um, how do we square all of that? And and um, and, and are, are we doing the wrong thing? Should we just be focusing on learning how to write narratives? So, uh, Greg, uh, so much there. Brilliant question. Um, so... You're, so this argumentative, persuasive, narrative kind of approach, that's something that's very popular in England too. Yeah. So, you know, what we're going to do is teach the different genres. Yeah. Um, so, you know, almost as though there's a persuasive genre and you have to teach that and then there's a narrative genre. And then, you know, all those are kind of almost discrete enough such that, um, you know, you could be great at one and bad at the other because you haven't learned the features of, of one or the other. Um, and what you're doing 
is obviously you're saying well, we want to focus more on, on the content and the, 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 the knowledge and the understanding that there'll be more complex responses you'll have and, and less complex ones. And, and, and if you're writing about Beth, as you say, that would be more challenging than, than writing about your, your pets. Um, so obviously, I, I really like that approach of the knowledge rich approach. I think it's um, really powerful. And I also think that um, essentially kind of what you're asking here is almost like a progression model question. And it's, there's an analogy with teaching reading and indeed teaching maths, which is that in all of these subjects, we have an end goal we want our students to reach. And the end goal is often a very complex holistic product. So the end goal in reading is we want pupils to be able to read, you know, I don't know, a newspaper article or an, a novel, a literary novel fluently. And the end goal of writing is we'd like them to be able to turn around, you know, emails, letters, you know, um, memos, pieces of writing, stories, uh, turn them around and write, write very fluently and, and very well in a way that others can understand. And with maths, we, we do want them to be solving complex real world maths problems. The question then becomes, like, what is the best way of achieving that end goal? And um, so one point I've made repeatedly is that you can't achieve the end goal by doing the end goal. Yeah. You have to break it down. And that in itself is a point of contention. Some people will say, no, you don't. Some people will say, uh, uh, yes, you do. But even when you accept that you need to break it down, people will disagree about the right way to break it down. So there are some people who will agree with me, you're right, you do have to break it down. But they'll say the best way to break down their end goal of becoming a proficient writer is through breaking it down, breaking down the complex skill of writing into these different genres. And I disagree with that. I actually don't think those genres are the right building blocks. Um, what are the right building blocks? So what I would say, and bear in mind when we're doing comparative judgment, we're engaged in the complex holistic assessment. We've assessed about half a million pieces of student writing over the last couple of years. So what are the building blocks of good writing? I don't want to, you know, say, you know, definitely definitively, this too, but two things that jump out again and again that I think are actually constant across different types of writing. And Greg, I'd even say actually across different topics, even more complex topics would be sentence structure and vocabulary. And I almost think that they're like the phonics of writing. Yeah. Okay, so we've, we've and you know, I would say sentence structure is like the phonics <laughs> and vocabulary is vocabulary, which would be, so with reading, I would yeah. say with reading, you, you need phonics and you need to vocabulary to be able to read, you need to know what yeah. words mean. <laughs> and I would say that sentence structure, my kind of tentative hypothesis at the minute is that sentence structure is to writing as phonics is to reading. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, I do kind of think that just as almost you know, kind of abstract instruction in phonics makes you a better reader, makes you a reader. <laughs> I do think there is a role for a kind of abstract instruction and sentence structure that will improve your writing across not just any genre, but actually even the more complex topics. Yeah. You know, so even if you're writing about Macbeth or you're writing about your pet, I, I think if you have a better sentence structure, you'll write a better essay. Yeah. Um, so I think my argument is how do we break it down? I do think the sentence structure is really important. There's a role for that. I do also totally agree with you about the issue of, um, you know, the writing prompts. And um, it would be great if we could have writing prompts that were knowledge rich, because that would then start to address almost the vocab issue. The other reason it is really important to have, um, a, you know, knowledge rich writing prompts is what you want to do is you do want to kind of, the really important thing for any assessment is we want to have a level playing field. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, you don't want to give a prompt on Macbeth when yeah. um you know a bunch of schools have studied Macbeth and studied a lot of Shakespeare and a bunch of schools haven't yeah because actually that's not fair on the kids who haven't 
Um, so, but the, the problem you've got at the minute in both England and I think in Australia, yeah. I don't know enough about Australia, but I assume, I think, I think you'd have this issue, is in England, we do have a national curriculum. So everyone goes, oh, we've got a national curriculum. Why can't you just set your writing prompts from topics on the national curriculum? And this is where, you know, to what extent is there a national curriculum in England? It's not the kind of really specific, uh, this is what you study at this moment in time that people maybe think it is. And I'm not arguing at this moment whether that's right or wrong. I'm just stating a fact. (laughs) And the fact is that we do have a very kind of detailed national curriculum. But within that, there's an awful lot of flexibility about how stuff is delivered. So let me give an example. Primary history, there's so many topics on the primary history curriculum, but you know one school let's assume that all schools do cover everything on the, the history curriculum so we'll just take that I'm not sure that is the case but let's just take that as a given even if they do you can teach those topics in any order you can teach them in any way and you can devote as much or as little time to them so let's say for example you know I'm looking to set an assessment um, and because I want it to be a knowledge-rich assessment I'd like to set it on a history topic I'll go well let's set it on the Vikings won't everyone have studied the Vikings by year six uh, and you would say, well, there might be one school who say, well, no, actually, we don't do the Vikings till the end of year six. And you might have another school who say, well, we do the Vikings, but we spend like a day on it in year three. So if you set your start of year six assessment on it, that's no good for us. And you've got another school who do a six week project on it at the end of year five. Uh, and they're going, oh, fantastic. Yeah, do the end of the start of year six uh, assessment on the Vikings. <laughs> so the point is, in order to set really rich, knowledge rich writing prompts, you need a level of prescription and specificity in a curriculum that does not exist at the minute in England. And without that, it's unfair to do it. Well, so, unless you were, so this is the thing that I bang on about in my blog, you at normal marking can't do this, but if the government right, said, right. we're going to assess the previous year's history national curriculum in the reading and writing assessments on NAPLAN or or SATs or whatever it is in the, the jurisdiction that you're in, like they've done in Louisiana, I believe, um, then people would teach it because they know that, that, that that's what the assessment's going to be on. Oh, but absolutely, it, yeah. But, I, and I would love to see that approach for writing and for reading. Yeah. I'd love to see the reading text being drawn from that. Yes. I think to do it, you'd have to strike a really um, clever balance. I have thought about this a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I've thought about it because it's something, you know, we would eventually one day, it'd be nice if we could do. But as you say, we don't, we're not the government. It's very hard for us to do this. But the balance you'd have to strike is the, the, wide, the pool of curriculum knowledge you were drawing from. It would have to be, it couldn't be so narrow that all the topics could be kind of minutely drilled. So if people knew, well, it was either going to be the Vikings or the ancient Greeks this year, yeah. you know, that's kind of too narrow. Yeah. You just get drilling on those, those two. I also think it's a challenge, though, if you make it really broad, there's a risk that people go, oh, this is just ridiculous. We can't cover any of the, all of this material. Uh, I mean, it is just effectively just potluck again. Yeah. And they go back to doing strategies because they think there's just no way I can. Well, you'd have to marry it with a realistic expectation of the curriculum. Correct. So it would you'd have to strike that balance right. And I think you'd also need a running. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, you, you need some kind of running where you'd say, well, you, you know, we're going to give you the time to, to teach this and it will sort of kick in uh, at this point. So I definitely want to see it. I think it would be great. It's something I think a lot of us have been talking about for a while. But in, um, in the I, absence yeah. of that, can we can we leverage it? So say our kids. So this hypothetical situation, they've been studying about refugees, yeah? And they know a lot about refugees and they're writing lots of stuff about refugees. And they go to, to NAPLAN or they go to No More Marking and the prompt is uh, a door, a picture of a door, blah, blah, blah. And we say to them, well, can you think of a way that you could um, 
write a story about um, a door, but but you bring in this stuff yeah. about refugees, and then you can make like a really interesting story about refugees and a door, some door and some refugees. Yeah. Like, is that a, a go a, a goer, or is that just daft? And we should just no, we should just I work on the sentence structure. I, I, no, I think that is important. And and what I would also say is, I think the thing why I also you know the the, the, the prompts almost I, I wouldn't worry too much about them is I do think the more knowledge and vocabulary you have, the better you will write kind of generally whatever the prompt is. And there probably will be a bit of a ceiling effect in that there'll be some very, very good kids who, if you had a more rich, complex text, would have been able to show, you know, demonstrate a bit more. Um, but I do think whatever the prompt, the more background knowledge and vocabulary you have, I think the better response you'll write. So, you know, that's why I don't worry about it too much. I think even when you have, you know, fairly generic writing prompts, it often still does give enough space for students to differentiate themselves. And I think also the other thing I'd say, and we've seen this certainly, I, I think, in, in our work, is that... Any assessment, whatever subjects, you're looking to set tasks that have um, a low floor and a high ceiling. Mm. So you want to set a task that everyone can access, but allows the top end to flourish. And actually, in maths, that's quite hard. Yes. And that's why yes. maths you end up tearing. Yeah. So maths is always the subject with assessments where, you know, assessment organisers will just go, well, we probably need to have a tier here because the questions that are going to stretch the top end are ones that the bottom end just won't even be able to answer. So that's why you end up tearing in maths is it's quite hard to set low floor, high ceiling questions. Actually, when it comes to writing, it is a bit easier. So again, the thing about some of the prompts that we use um, is that, you know, we are able to get that spread and you are able to have a prompt that a weak writer will be able to engage with and say something, but will still stretch the top end. Now, of course, there's still limits. And we would also always say to people is that at the bottom and the top end, if you want finer discrimination at those ends, set another assessment. So at the bottom end, you might be better off following up with a kind of almost, you know, in some cases, actually an, an alphabet writing task, potentially. Yeah. At the top end, you might be better off following up with, um, you know, a, a, a kind of more complex text prompt that prompts for a piece of writing. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's just assessment that, you, you know, you, you, you've got to deal with, with those constraints. I think what we're doing in the big national projects we run is doing quite, you know, really big projects across really big cohorts, big numbers. As I say, we've assessed, you know, about half a million pieces of writing over the last few years. And so we're able to give you this very good kind of overview of, of where students are. And yes, you know, the discrimination at the ends might be, you know, not as, not as, not as fine grained, but you're getting really amazing insights across entire cohorts. So based on your knowledge, um, uh, you, you imagine you've got some uh, head of English in a in a school that they've got their they, their writing results are not going where they want them to be that they maybe their key stage two SATs in the UK or NAPLAN in Australia or whatever and they're looking at these results and they're thinking I want to improve these what's the quick fix Daisy what's the what's the what's the 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 problem solved instant solution that give them the biggest bang bang for their buck. Well, I'm obviously going to say they should do comparative judgment, you know, <laughs> um, so they should take part, uh, you know, we've got a new, we've got a new Australian project coming, so they should do that. <laughs> um, so I do think, you know, one of the things you get if you take part in, in our comparative judgment assessments is you get after the assessment, you get the scores for all your students, you get a report on all your students, you also get a set of 15 scripts that are taken from across the attainment range from that assessment. I think that is really powerful. OK, and that kind of orients you. It does all the good things about the moderation meeting of you get to see what's out there. You get to yeah. see where the standard is. So okay? other schools. 
yeah. from other schools. Absolutely. So you get a kind of an idea of what is the range? What is the standard at this age group? You know, what's the top end? What's the bottom end? What's everything in between? I then think, you know, it's then like, well, how do I use that then? What I want to do going forward to improve our writing. And that's something we've also been working on um, at No More Marking. You know, we don't just want to be about the holistic end goal assessment. It's also about then what's the progression model that builds there. So one of the things we've been working on in the last year or so is following up with some of the students who have taken the comparative judgment assessment, following up with some smaller um, multiple choice questions that are zooming in on particular features that we've identified as being important from reading all of this writing. Yeah. And as I said to you before, sentence structure is one we think is really important. Um, and in particular, within the category of sentence structure, we've done a lot of questions around that, but run on sentences. Yeah. Um, and so run on sentences, those kind of sentences that just go on and on and on with no full stop. And yeah. as a result, become very difficult to understand. It's actually quite difficult verbally to say what a run on sentence is, because one of the reasons why students do run on sentences is they're almost just writing down uh, kind of what they hear. Yeah. Um, so, so, so if you've got students who are just, just thinking about speech, they're trying to almost transcribe speech. That's often one of the reasons you get a run on sentence. Um, and so if I said a run on sentence out loud, you go, well, what's wrong with that? You've been speaking in run on sentences all day. Yeah. But when they're written down, this is the difference between written speech, uh, verb, you know, oral speech. You had David Geary on recently talking yeah. about biological, primary, biological, secondary. This is one of the challenges of writing. It isn't just spoken language transcribed. Yeah. Um, it has its own set of artificial rules, and, and, and regulations that govern it that help us when we're reading to understand but in some ways they're not natural so yeah. they're artificial the standard written code is not something we evolved it's yeah. something that's grown up quite deliberately almost uh, you know over you know, a couple hundred years yeah. so what what we see is these run-on sentences they make it much harder for the reader to understand what the student is saying and we also saw that they were real features of the weaker writing and they were not so present in the writing that was getting the high scores on comparative judgment. So we followed up with lots of multiple choice questions. So multiple choice questions that were just zooming in on, on this. So we would give students, very simple, we'd give them five options. We'd say, pick the correct sentence. The correct sentence would be a proper sentence and the four wrong answers would be run on sentences. Yeah. And what we were finding is that when we set these kind of questions, uh, you know, maybe 20 or 30% only were getting the right answer. Uh, okay. Remarkable, like really quite low numbers. Because so, identifying a run-on sentence yeah. Is, yeah. is, you would assume, is a lot easier than avoiding writing one. Exactly. So the yeah. other really fascinating thing about this is when we talk to teachers about this, they will say, well, look, the reason my students write run-on sentence, they'll say it's carelessness. Yeah. They'll say it's maybe a bit of laziness, and they'll say it's just because they get carried away with their story and they forget. Yeah. So... I was never quite convinced by that hypothesis. <laughs> I always thought, well, is it just forget? And, and, and you know what? A lot of the time there is forgetfulness. And a lot of the time when you're combining together lots of complex things, you know, you can be able to do all of them individually. And when you combine them together. Oh, it's cognitive load. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't want to rule that out as, a, a, as yeah. an option. You know, go back to the driving example. You can do every individual bit of a three-point term well, but when you put them all together, you know, it goes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't want to rule out that forgetfulness, you know, I think it is a sensible thing to, to, to consider. But I actually think it's not the issue of run-on sentences. I actually think the issue of run-on sentences, a lot of times students genuinely don't know where to put a full stop. Yeah. They genuinely yeah. don't know what a run-on sentence is. And that was why we wanted to set up these questions, because let's suppose that all the students have got the multiple choice questions right and they were making the errors in their writing. You'd then say, well, um, the issue then is... Um, 
the issue then is is forgetfulness or it is yeah. it is you know kind of fluency they yeah. do know what to do they're just not reliably doing it yeah but that wasn't what we found we found that the students you know as i said when given five options and only one was right and they knew that only one was right they were routinely picking the, the wrong the wrong answers um and then so that was one really interesting finding yeah okay the numbers of students getting those questions wrong the second fascinating finding was we then correlated these scores with the comparative judgment scores because one of the big critiques of multiple choice questions is always what does this have to do with reality yeah Uh, you know multiple choice questions are very artificial you're never going to encounter them in the real world they don't look like the real world task of writing that we want students to do the big critique of them is is that and i have some sympathy limited sympathy with this question because i do think if you just end up focusing solely on multiple choice questions you do then have an issue about well you know is this kind of transferring so i wouldn't want to see everything turn into multiple choice questions yeah. which is why i think comparative judgment is really important because it's giving you that proper end goal assessment um but what we found is that there was a really good correlation between the two so what we were finding is that the students who scored highly on the comparative judgment assessment were the ones who were getting these questions about run-ons and so on and so forth right. So you could uh, and flip we were, that and you yeah. could use that as like a screen for risk, couldn't you? So before yeah. doing your um, big piece of writing, you could screen kids with a few multiple choice questions. So, yeah. well, actually, it's kids at risk of not doing very well in the forthcoming writing assessment. Absolutely, absolutely. And so I think there's lots we can do with these questions. I think yeah. they could be used as screens for risk, as you say. Yeah. I think they can also be used as pre and post tests. Yeah. So you can see, right, are the students improving on these? I think they can also be used as learning instruments. Um, and in I think, you know, retrieval practice, uh, you know, the, 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 the testing Absolutely. has a learning effect. And I think you can also then do a mix of blocked and interleaved questions as well. So if you're just teaching, you know, one specific thing about run-ons, you do 10 questions just on that specific thing yeah. you've taught. And then you interleave with things you've taught in, in previous lessons. So we've found it really interesting to do this because the other multiple choice questions and comparative judgment tasks look really different. Yeah. You know, they look really different. And, and that's obviously say, one of the reasons why people often have been dubious about multiple choice questions. And what we're finding is in some cases, these really kind of strong correlations between the two. Um, so it does feel like also the other thing about this is it's giving you a way of, because actually traditionally it has been hard to see if you set a multiple choice question, all the kids get it wrong. Is it because it was, um, uh, you know, they didn't understand it? Or did you write a bad question? And it yeah. is possible to write bad multiple choice questions. This is almost giving you a way to judge the effectiveness of your questions. Yeah. So we have some questions that are really tightly, you know, incredibly tightly correlated with the comparative judgment score. And we can then say, well, there's something about that. It's probably a, a really good question. You know, it's probably doing something there. Um, you know, the one question we set where all the kids who got it right were scoring, I think, 12 months higher than the kids who got it wrong. On their comparative judgment writing task and you thought well, that's something there's something going on with that question uh, that is tapping something that is 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 is, is to do with the constructs we want, we want students to have um you're reminding so, yeah. me of, of something i've read of yours and and so it's it's not obviously linked initially but um i remember you talked about so i say you wrote about um when you introduced a english curriculum uh in the arc schools and then you'd written it and then you then actually replaced it with uh direct instruction uh an engelman program uh and you said that clearly the writing was improving 
uh, but the teachers didn't like it as much because they they felt they didn't feel like the kids were making progress, even though objectively on the measures you had, they were making more progress in the the Engelman program than the previous one. And I'd link that to this thing with multiple choice. I think we'd need to we'd have to go on quite a case to demonstrate that this is linked to the writing performance because you could you could imagine teachers engaging in an activity like that and saying, yeah, but what I don't think the kid this is easy. These questions are easy. The kids aren't making any progress. Why aren't we doing some writing sort of thing? So, yeah, I, I'm just trying to connect those things together. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, I, I, as I said, I do have some sympathy with the argument that, you know, all these quizzes, you know, what have they got to do with writing? Yeah. Because I think when you only focus on them, it is easy to create bad ones. Yeah. It is easy to go down rabbit holes. It is easy to start teaching. And this happens with high stakes, multiple choice questions. It is easy to start teaching tips and tricks to solve the multiple choice question yeah. uh, and, and, and not actually the underlying content yeah so the point is if you only have multiple choice questions there are lots of ways they can get skewed but that's why i really love this combination of the multiple choice question and the writing well it's like a sort of hierarchy and the multiple choice question is a quick way of assessing something when you haven't got time to do a writing exactly and that if you've got the two of them that are very clearly as we are putting it together and you know in all of the resources we do on this they're very clearly kind of locked together that we're literally tying back why have we chosen these dis- distractors in this question? Well, we've chosen these distractors because here's what we see in the writing. So we'll literally show a piece of writing yeah. and say, you know, we've, we've taken almost a piece of this writing and used it as a distractor yeah. because these are the common errors that we're seeing. So, and we can then point to the data and say, look, we know this isn't just some trivial question that they just guess at because yeah. it's having a real, it's got a real correlation with what we're seeing in the, in the end product. So I think, and, and, and as I say, look, you know, um, comparative judgment is relatively new. There's a couple of other people out there doing it. Multiple choice questions have been around for ages and there's yeah. lots of them out there. I think what we've done that, as far as I know, no one's done is combining them together. Yeah. And, and, and this is what I, I talked about, that progression model. This is what I'm really interested in what we're trying to do is, you, you know, I talk about a marathon analogy a lot of the time. Yeah. That, you know, to, to learn to run a marathon, you don't run a marathon every day. You do lots of kind of smaller things. Yeah. You do things that look like going to the marathon. Yeah. You know, to, to become a good writer, um, you, you, it's not just about writing, uh, you know, lengthy pieces every day. Like there's a progression model. Yeah. The question is, what's the best progression model? What should that look like? Uh, just because I'm saying that you break it down to smaller chunks. Well, there's lots of different ways of breaking it down to yeah. smaller chunks. Just because I'm saying do multiple choice questions. Well, there's lots of different types of multiple choice questions. We even so, found that there's a stamina thing. So you, you, right. kids just have to have the experience of sitting there and literally writing for a long time. Yeah, absolutely absolutely yeah. You know, that that as well so you know what we're trying to do is almost to say like what is that progression model yeah you know what are the steps that are going to do that and to do that you need both you need the end goal and you need the steps on the way um so what we're doing as i say i think we're the only people doing it, is, is that you know melding together blending together those 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 two things so tell us about your australian project and your webinar great I will do. So um, we have, as I say, in England over the last uh, couple of years, we've run these big national assessment projects at primary and secondary and assessed about half a million pieces of student writing. We've used that to do all kinds of interesting things like construct a writing age. Uh, again, we think that's the first writing age kind of anywhere in the world. We also run a, um, a kind of smaller national projects uh, in, in America. So we, we've done that as well. And um, we uh, are now starting to run national projects in Australia. 
So we ran one actually back in February. I think we had about uh, 40, 40 schools. I think mostly in Victoria, but a few other states as well took part. And we ran that, that was for year three. Um, and that went really well. So we're running another one. Uh, we were meant to be sort of be running it in August, but all of the lockdowns, we had some, 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 some delays. So we've pushed it back. And actually schools now have two options. There's, a, uh, there's an assessment they can take part in in November. And we will also do another one in February. So you can choose which one suits you, because I know there's been, been difficulties with school clo schools closing. And we're running uh, one in year three and one in year eight. And these are trial projects, so they're free to take part in. Yep. So if your school's interested in taking part in them, you can sign up for free. And we set the prompt. And, and, yeah. and, and Greg, I hate to disappoint you, it will be a generic prompt, um, yeah. but it is a nice one. So we set the prompt and the students respond to the prompt. You upload the writing, you judge it in the way I talked about the 80-20 split. And because we've got lots of schools taking part, um, we can actually also, what we did in the previous project, which we'll be able to do again, is give you NAPLAN data. So we'll be able to give you a kind of um, uh, indicative NAPLAN grade uh, in yeah. the reports that we, that we provide. And we have a webinar uh, coming up on the 26th of October. Um, we have a webinar coming up on the 26th of October where you will be able to kind of find out more about that and kind of take part in the, in the, in the judging um, and, uh, you know, see how it works and see exactly what the, uh, what the um, you know, what the system kind of re requires of you. So if people um, were interested in that, what do, what do they do? How do they register? Do they go no more marking? So, yeah. So, I mean, uh, the, the, yeah, the, if you go to nomarmarking.com, yeah. um, if you go to it in Australia, that will automatically take you to um, the, the Australian kind of website of all the information. So you can go there and under the um, training events page, um, that, that'll be there. Um, so you can, you can sign up for that um and and find out more about it it'll be kind of an hour long we'll tell you everything you need to know to um to take part in, in that cool excellent now um uh did you have to answer the door or something you're okay uh i'm okay you're okay all right okay um i just wanted to end just with a little bit of a reflection uh there's a guy which people in ours might not be familiar with uh people in the uk are probably more familiar with nick gibb so nick gibb was until last week the schools minister uh, in the UK, which is like a junior um, ministerial position, um, but he'd been in that role for quite a long time. And um, I met him and I think you actually, am I right in think, thinking you took a part in a debate with him? Is that right? Yeah. 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 So that was at the, where was that? Goodness, it was at, um, oh, it was at uh, the World World Education Forum, something. <laughs> I can't remember the name. Global Skills Forum had a name like that. And who did you do it? So it was yeah. you and Nick Gibb on one side, um, mm. and you were debating. Was it Andreas Schleicher? Andres, yeah, it was. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. um, we were debating. I think that the, the title was something. You know, gosh, I can't remember. This house believes we should drill kids with facts or something. Yeah, it was the title. It was a very prejudiced title. You know, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, and Schleicher was not in favour of drilling kids with facts. But no, you were, so Schleicher was 21st century skills, no facts. And yeah. uh, Nick and I were the um, the you know fill up fill up the kids. We were the grad grinds. We were the fill up the kids with facts uh, merchants. Yeah, I suppose I was I was like setting politics aside, which is obviously difficult to do. I mean, the guy's a conservative minister, and I don't want to be party political or anything. But what I do like is when uh, ministers of whatever party actually know a little bit <laughs> about what they're on about. You, you get the impression with a lot of ministers 
uh, education ministers particularly, they're just passing through. They're, they're, they're on the way to the Treasury, maybe to the Prime Minister's office, and they're trying to, they just want to do something in the space, do an initiative or something that will help them move in their progression. Whereas Nick Gibb was a little bit different, and uh, all, he wound a lot of people up in Britain. Uh, he uh, was he pushed for the phonics check and things like that, and a lot of people in the education establishment weren't keen. But I think they'd all, even the people that disliked him, would recognise that he had um, he, he understood the terrain in a way that many education ministers don't. And I, and I think that uh, because of that, he will be missed. Yeah, so I think you're absolutely right what you said there, which is that I think not just junior education ministers, but junior ministers in general. I, I think Nick was very unusual in, 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 uh, amongst, amongst junior ministers in general in that he, he knew about his brief. <laughs> um, and it does seem one of those, uh, you know, kind of weird things that, as you say, um, junior ministers of all types, they will shuffle around from really quite different departments. And also they're in office for not very long. Yeah. Uh, and cabinet ministers often are not in office for very long. So you have this sort of situation where someone spends, you know, they'll have 18 months being a junior minister and they will spend the year kind of getting up to speed on exactly what it entails. And often the junior minister role, there's a lot of minutiae, you know, whatever sector you're in, it's yeah. real, you know, in the weeds detail. And then after 18 months, they move on. Um, and, you, you know, you can say, well, you know, does that matter? You've got a permanent civil service underneath. You can argue the, the, the details of it. But look, regardless of whether you think that's a good or a bad thing, I think the remarkable thing about Nick was, A, he really did know about his grief, and B, he was in office for a very long time. So both those things made him very unusual as, as junior ministers go. And absolutely, I think when it came to, to phonics and I think a lot of the evidence on learning, he was remarkably well-informed. And I think he was a much better informed um, than a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of people in, in, in a lot of kind of education institutions. I, I really think that was the case. And I think he was someone who was talking uh, about not just, um, you know, people would always maybe tease slightly that he would always mention Edie Hirsch, but he was talking about uh, people like Daniel Willingham, about the cognitive science, the science of learning, a lot of the science of reading. Uh, you know, he was very well informed about that and was, was, was talking about all of that. And, and I believe has had some influence in Australia, too. And I think he visited, didn't he, a few years ago and had an influence on the, the phonics check. Um, yes, so, so yeah. yeah, he did. Uh, we have a phonics check here now. It's slightly different here, our structure. We have a federal uh, minister of education, but who education is really run by the states. So the federal minister has to essentially persuade the states to get on board with things. And the, the federal ministers have come and gone, but they've been convinced of this case for phonics check, largely due to the work of people like Jennifer Buckingham, who you might be familiar with, and, and Nick Gibb, and, and, and me, and when I think it was Dan Tian who met with Nick Gibb, and now that is starting to filter through, so we've got um, the phonics check in South Australia, phonics check mm -hmm. in New South Wales, it's sort of optional in other areas, but hopefully it's gathering a bit of a head of steam, so yeah, he has had that influence, and uh, I, think he, I think he will be missed. Uh, to the broader educational community. And uh, yeah. yeah, it's interesting. The whole idea of ministers is based on a notion of transferable generic skills that I would I mean, this is possibly... so true. <laughs> so true. <laughs> and I think also the history of the civil service. I'm actually reading a book at the the history yeah. of the British civil yeah. service. And that influence goes, that idea goes shot through there as well. This idea that you just have these, uh, you know, sort of brilliant generalists who will be able to, you know, draft a paper on free school meals and then turn to mental health or waste disposal and yeah. you know it's all as one to them um so yeah I, I think that is increasingly difficult um if it was ever possible 
Yeah. But I do think you do need some domain specific skills in this, as in a lot of areas of life. Look, Daisy, it's been brilliant chatting to you. Uh, thanks for coming on. And um, no doubt, if, I, if I'm still podcasting um, in the future, um, then I'll, I've no doubt I will want to chat to you again. So thank you for your time yeah. today. Always really good to chat, Greg. Loads of really interesting questions there. Thanks for your time. Thank you.